All right, I have one more comment about uh, uh, last week. We, 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 we spent most of the time finishing uh, some things, and we did sign four, which was uh, found in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, about the feeding of the 5,000. Remember I said that the sign of uh, chapter 6 was a creation sign, and it was a sign uh, that was going to be preparatory for what we're going to be talking about today, that Jesus is the bread of life. The sign of feeding of the 20,000, as it probably was, was a preparatory sign that causes us to look at the spiritual meaning of this physical event. Jesus took five loaves of bread and two small fishes, and He blessed them and multiplied them and there was a fragment of 12 baskets left over. We're going to look at the spiritual meaning of that over the next couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about the intimacy with Christ of eating His flesh and drinking His blood. We're going to help you understand that it's not cannibalism He's talking about. He's talking about a relationship and an intimate abiding in Christ and being satisfied in Christ and being and Him being sufficient for our day-to-day and in our life and, of course, for our future. But we didn't talk about this. We're at the top of um, chapter 6, verse 15. This is sign 5. There's not a lot to talk about. It's pretty self-explanatory, but it is Jesus uh, speaking and the storm obeys Him. And it is a sign that gives further evidence that He is God. So the the story is, after he finishes these miracles, he goes up to a mountain to pray. Uh, He understands that the people want to take him physically to be their king, and he he didn't come to be a physical ruler monarch who would free the people from the oppression of the Romans. He came to set up a spiritual kingdom. His physical future kingdom is yet to be and will be, but he didn't come the first time to accomplish that particular purpose. So he understood The people were curious. They were rabid in their wanting to see more miracles. So he goes by himself alone and he prays. In the interim, the disciples go. They go on the other side of the the water and a storm comes. It's pretty typical for the Sea of Galilee, uh, Sea of Tiberias. And then there's a storm and the disciples, the wind's blowing and they are afraid. And Jesus comes to the rescue as He does in the other synoptic Gospels. Look at the uh, chapter 6, verse 15. This is sign number 5, and this will be at the bottom of lesson 12. I have not much to write about, not much to talk about, but I want to see the end result of what Jesus did. Uh, 6.15, Therefore when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him an earthly king, He departed to the mountain by Himself alone. Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over toward the over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they willingly received Him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. So sign number five 
is given to us to show us again that Jesus is God. He is deity. And how else could He show He's God? By having command over His creation. He is a creator of all things. He is set in motion all things. By Him all things still consist. And He is ahead over all things as we've talked about in the book of Colossians as we've read this. So Jesus demonstrates and He speaks to the storm and it stops. His disciples are afraid. He says, it is I. Have you ever heard that voice saying, it is I in your life? Have you ever been afraid and you literally, through the Scripture and through the Spirit, bringing that Scripture to life, have you experienced Him say to you, it is I? It's a fantastic, fantastic, indescribable peace and joy that comes over you when you literally, without hearing a voice, you hear the voice, it's I. I know Dan's done it. I know all of these people on this row who experienced And I know everybody in here has experienced that, isn't it? It is I. I would let Dwayne give an example, but we don't have that much time. <laughs> I would let Fran, but she would take too long. But Jesus says, it is I. He spoke as Creator over His creation, and His creation obeyed Him. And the disciples, when they heard Jesus say, it is I, they were not afraid anymore. Because they were at peace, because their Master was there. Luke uh, sums this up, I think, very well. It may or may not be the same event. Uh, uh, but look at Luke 8. We get a little additional info into this. Uh, if you look at Luke 8, 24 through 25, look at the, uh, the, the disciples' response. Whether or not this is the same event or not, uh, uh, we just really are not sure. But look at Luke 8. I'm not sure. Somebody probably is. Luke 8, 24. There's a storm, same thing. The windstorm is on the lake. Verse 23, they were filling with water. Probably a different event because it's a little different circumstances. They came to Him and awoke Him saying, definitely different because He's not even there yet. He walks to the boat. So I've corrected myself by reading this. And they came to Him and awoke saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He arose, rebuked the wind, the raging of the water, and they ceased and there was a calm. And He said, Where is your faith. And they were afraid and marveled and said to one another, Who can this be? For He commands even the winds and water, and they obey Him. So sign 5, Jesus shows His sovereignty over His creation. He speaks, the storm stops, and the disciples who were afraid are now not afraid. They are comforted by Him. And they think to themselves, whether it's this situation or another situation, who can this be? So we ask ourselves, who can this be? And the answer is, He's God. He is who He says He is. Now, this is going to be preparatory. All these signs for the gist of the lesson. So we're now we're in Lesson 13. And we're going to get to verse 40 today. I'm pretty sure. 
On the following day, when the people who were standing at the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus hadn't entered the boat with the disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus wasn't there nor his disciples, they got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, where, when did you get here? When did you come here? Jesus didn't answer the question. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do? That we may work the works of God. And Jesus said to him, This is the work of God, that you believe. In Him whom He sent. Therefore they said to Him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say unto you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. For I've come from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me. Now all he has given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Uh, uh, let's look first of all at Jesus' rebuke of the crowd. Jesus rebukes the crowd. I think I've got that under two. Jesus rebukes the crowd. The crowd comes to Him because they have seen the miracles, they have seen the signs, and they are looking for something even more charismatic. They are looking for externals. They are looking for the grandiose. They are looking to be amazed. It's like they're trying to go to a magician show. They want some spec. They want fireworks. They, and so they come to Jesus looking for Him, not because they are spiritually seeking Him, not because they have an internal desire to come to Him, the Messiah, not because they believe He's the Christ, not because they trust in Him and what He says and His works. They come to Him out of superficial curiosity. And they follow Him. They notice that He didn't go when the rest of His disciples go. So they wonder how He got to the other side. He didn't come on another boat. So they all come with their boats. And the first thing they ask Him is, How did you get here? Jesus always answers questions that He wants to get the answers to because He wants to challenge the hearts of men. So He didn't answer this superficial question. He got right to their hearts. And he rebuked them lovingly as he does. He rebuked the crowd and he said, look what he said in verse 26. 
You seek me not because you saw the signs. He doesn't mean they didn't see the sign and the miracle and the sharing of the loaves and the spreading of the loaves that could feed 20,000. He says you missed the spiritual sign. You missed the point of the matter. You missed the reason why I did this. Yes, I fed you temporarily. Yes, I gave you a respite from your hunger by miraculously dividing these loaves and these small fish. But he says, you didn't seek me because you saw the spiritual ramification. You're still missing the point. As a matter of fact, he said, the only reason you came because you're hungry and you want another free meal. Jesus knew their hearts. He avoided the question, how did you get there? Inconsequential, they wouldn't believe him anyway. Right? He says, you don't still don't understand the spiritual nature of my sign, and you're just here for superficial obtuseness. I think MacArthur said this, and I like what he says. Uh, 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 the question demonstrates an F. 2F. The crowd expected... Uh, we're going to get to this in a minute. It's all the same, similar thing. The question demonstrated the obtuseness, the spiritual blindness, their shallow, selfish curiosity. The feeding of the 20,000 should have been enough to demonstrate Christ's deity. And so Jesus is going to respond to them in a second rebuke in a second, but... The, 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 the crowd comes not because of a spiritual desire, but they have a materialistic, superficial, charismatic response, and they're selfish in their coming to Jesus. So Jesus says, you just want another free meal. And then Jesus, what He does is He... he uh, what he does is he rebukes the crowd. He, 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 he basically gets to their motivation. This isn't in your notes, but I'll just put this up here. He gets to their motivation, and he knows their hearts, and he tells them, he rebukes them for their illicit motivations. And then what he does is he devalues the physical, and then he emphasizes the spiritual. And he does this in a couple of different ways. He says, don't labor for food which perishes. Now, he's not saying that you shouldn't work to provide food for your family. Scripture says if you don't eat, you don't work, you shouldn't eat. So Jesus is not saying don't work for a living, don't work for food to pay for your family. He's not saying that. What he is saying is, the physical perishes, it is temporary. You need to focus on the spiritual. The spiritual is eternal. The, per- the, phys- the spiritual doesn't perish. And the spiritual comes after the physical, and the spiritual is of much more valuableness that's a word, than the physical is. you understand what I'm saying? He gets to their hearts. He says, you're just here for a meal. And he says, don't labor for the food which perishes. And then he differentiates between the physical and the spiritual. And then he says, the food which endures, uh, the spiritual endures to everlasting life. And so he says, the food is temporary, it perishes. The spiritual food endures, it does not perish. And that goes back to what he told the woman at Samaria. Remember what he said to her. 
she came to get water, and she said, and uh, he says, if you knew the one who asked you to give me water, you would ask him, and he would give you living water, which what? Which who he who drinks will never thirst. The water I give will become in him a fountain of the water springing up in everlasting life. Same connotation. Jesus is saying the physical is temporary. It doesn't endure. But the spiritual is everlasting. It endures forever. Focus on the spiritual. And then we notice here, do not labor for the food. The physical is obtained by work, but the spiritual is what? What differentiates the physical food from the spiritual food besides the fact that one is temporary and one is everlasting? What is the big difference that Jesus emphasizes here? It's a gift. The physical food is is earned. The earned is physical. You work for food. But the spiritual is a gift. Jesus again differentiates between the physical and the spiritual. The physical is worked for and earned, but the spiritual, it says, uh, which the Son of Man will give you. It is a gift. It is an unmerited free gift. Jesus chastens a crowd and He says, you need to worry about your hearts. Your hearts aren't right. You need to understand that I am He of who the prophets spoke. I am He of who Old Old Testament Scripture points to. You need to believe that I am who I say I am and that I am God. And I have not come to set up an earthly kingdom at this time. I've come to set up a spiritual kingdom. The The kingdom of heaven is at hand which is the theme of Matthew. So everybody understand that. He tells them the physical is earned, but the spiritual is a gift. Everybody understand that? Any comments or questions? And my wife just laughed at me this week because they always say that. Does everybody understand that? It's one of my Donisms that is uh, maybe distracting to you. And then the last thing he says, which emphasizes what he just said, Look what he says at the end of 27, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. God the Father, and another claim on His deity, God the Father has set His seal on Jesus. Now what do we know about uh, seals? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, what did they? Uh, would somebody give these to Greg and Brenda who just? Uh... Oh, beautiful! Do you need another one then? What does it mean to set your seal? The king's seal. Once it was placed on a document, made it everlasting. At least to them, it did. It authenticated. And it was a decree, and this decree was non-changeable, right? And usually what he would do, he would put in some form of clay, and he'd do a signet ring. He would put that imprint of his ring, and then he would stamp it on a a sealed letter or a, a document or whatever. So when Jesus says God has set His seal on Jesus, Father has authenticated 
and the decree of Christ is authentic. It is, it is in unity with the Father. I and the Father are one, and it is non-changeable. So uh, further, Jesus always had witnesses to fulfill the law. So God, Jesus said, the Father has set His seal on me. He has authenticated my words. My words are His words. We're in unity one for another. I'm God, and they are non-changeable. It is it, it basically, there's a permanence to it. His will will be done. His decrees will be accomplished. Uh, so when he says he set his seal on Jesus, that's what he's talking about, which further authenticates what he just said, that spiritual, spiritual bread is a gift. Physical bread is a earned product, but we need to focus on the spiritual. That's how he rebuked the crowd. Any comments about that? Any comments about that? Is the reason that he, these people didn't get this is because the rabbis was basically not really teaching that, that much out of the scriptures as much as they were doing the legalistic things? I think that would certainly be a factor, yes. Yes. They don't get it. Because it is a spiritually discerned thing. And they are fleshly, and flesh can't understand spiritual. And the rabbis did teach them wrongly. There's no doubt about that. They didn't have their own Bibles to open up, and they were taught wrongly. They were taught by the Pharisees. They were taught by ritualism, legalism, and all these things. They misinterpreted the Scriptures. Yes. And it is in all of this, the blindness of the eyes, the, the, hear, the hardening of the hearing, is all a consequence to their rejection of the Old Testament Scripture, the disobedience of following other gods. It goes, and so finally God said, I'm going to give you over to reprobation. I'm going to close your ears, and I'm going to blind your eyes so you can't see. Right? So this is all the part of that. Everything you said was right. This is all a consequence of that. Yes. Um, yes, ma'am. I was just wondering, uh, you could ask us this side of the cross, do we believers really understand this grace that's given? Because grace isn't natural to the natural man, but to the spiritual man, it should be known. And yet, often, we don't recognize the grace that's given. We don't understand it. That's right. And, 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 and like I always say, before you get on the Jews' case and you're so antagonistic against them, Jesus actually, at the end of this chapter, sees the same thing in His disciples. Look at this. Everything that Sally just said, look what Jesus deals with. 660. 666. We're going to see, as we get to this next week, many of the disciples that followed Him, not the twelve, but many of His outside circle of influence disciples followed Him. They didn't understand His teaching. And look what Jesus says. Uh, from that time, verse 66, From that time many of His disciples went back and walked with Him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And look what He says, Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. There's a tent of arrogance in there. We have come to believe this. And what did Jesus say to this little tent? That it's not understanding grace. Jesus said, 
Did I not choose you twelve and one of you is a devil? He just always wants us to understand it's grace. We haven't come to, we've come to believe but by the grace of God. And it's not work, is not a derivative of us. So he always keeps his disciples humble as we should be humble. They said, we've come to believe. Jesus said, be careful not to take one itsy bitsy bit of credit for this. Right? So we need to understand with Paul, what do we have that we have not been given? Grace. If you do not understand it is all by grace, you are missing, missing, missing. We have been given unmerited favor, undeserved favor, and thank you for Sally for uh, reemphasizing that. The disciples had a tinge, a tinge. We've come to believe. There's something about us a little better than these disciples that just left you. Jesus said, I chose you twelve and one of you is the devil. The only thing that separates you from that devil is my grace. Okay? You believe that, Dwayne? I think you do. I know you do. So we see this. Now, yes, you sure can. If I were a, a Jewish trained or a Jewish priest in the background and I heard that saying, knowing what the seal really meant, he's saying that God and Christ are one. Are in the, you know, the earth. Yes. The authentication goes even deeper than what I was first thinking. He does say, I and the Father are one in the end of chapter 8, doesn't he? And, that, and he's telling that, he's telling that to the people. Beautiful. Now. Where am I? Where am I? Verse 28. No, no, I'm, I'm glad. I was just uh, fighting back an emotion there. I shouldn't have fought it. I should let it flow like Greg does. I should bring some t- tissue up here. But Then they said to him, What shall we do? See, they still don't get grace. Look at them. Jesus has said, The Father has set his seal on me. He's talked about the spiritual uh, that's a gift from God. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Do you see it? Nothing changes. 2,000 years later, we're still, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Grace is... What did you say? Unknown, unknowable to the natural man. The natural man is going to react the way his nature tells him to do, and his nature says, i got to do something to do this. They still have this same answer. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And then Jesus confirms grace again. Verse 29, in my humble opinion, is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. If you don't know 629, I would counsel you to memorize it. It's a great verse. It is the foundational point of everything that Terry's been talking about, and it's going to be foundation to what I'm about to talk about. And if you don't understand it, the top of your head is going to blow off. 
Jesus said, This is the work of God that you believe. Everybody, and I'm going to, people, you defy them that. You believe because God worked it in you to believe. It didn't come natural to you. It's something you didn't choose to do. He chose you. He has caused you to believe. People always argue with me, but you got, yes, you got to believe. Absolutely, but you wouldn't unless He created that in your brain cell. Right? Everybody understand that? Jesus said, this is they're saying, what do we got to do? What do we got to do? What is to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, period, that you believe. That you believe in me, Jesus, whom he sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That's a great verse. This is the work of God. And so we have great hope for our lost family and friends that God will work in them and they will believe. And that's not a... Uh, I've, asked, I've been asked before about hopelessness in, in certain situations. That's a great hope that God will work in them to believe. And later when we get into this is the will of God that all He has given me will come to me, that's all in the same package. And we know that God, when He works in a person's heart, that that person will come to God. That sheep will come into the sheepfold. None of the sheep will be lost. Jesus will go out and find the sheep and, and, and find them. He will go find the lost coin. He will go find them and not one of them will be lost. You remember we talked about last week the spiritual meaning of the twelve basket fragments? Not one piece of fragment is going to remain. All that God has worked in the hearts of a man will come to believe and His purposes will be accomplished. Jesus is not going to be frustrated. Father is not frustrated. He didn't come, we're going to get in this second, to make it a mere possibility for His people to be saved, but He actually accomplished their salvation. Okay? So there's no possibility that they will not come. That's not possible that a sovereign God wouldn't accomplish His purposes. We'll get into that in a second. That was a uh, precursor. We'll get to it. This is the work of God that you believe. Jesus confirms grace. The grace of God produces faith in us and we respond. Notice we have a human responsibility. He creates the faith and we respond in believing, trusting, and resting in Him alone. Human responsibility, grace of God. He causes us to believe and yet we have to believe, we have to trust, and we have to rest in Him. But if He did it, we're going to do it. Everybody got pretty amazing thing. And uh, I could read all these verses. You're familiar with these verses. The pastor read these verses this morning, so I'm not going to read them again. But Ephesians 2, 4, and 10, Romans 5, 1 through 11, all over the Scripture, and we're going to see it again and again. The one thing you're going to notice about, about the book of John, it, it is supremely sovereignty of God oriented. It's in 
every page of the book. Okay? You can't get away from it. That's why it's my favorite book in the Old Testament, besides maybe Ephesians and Romans. But it's... <laughs> in Hebrews, ah, yeah, I got to start on But anyway, this is the work of God. If you don't get anything out of today, memorize that verse. This is the work of God, and put your name in it. This is the work of God that Sally believes in Christ. This is the work of God that Rachel believes in Christ, that Dan, that everybody else in here who names the name of Jesus, you believe that and trust that because God worked that in you. And it's not foolishness to you. But it is the power of God and the salvation, and you're not ashamed of it, and you will proclaim it and live it. Right? And if you can't proclaim that, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't accept Him as... God, may God work that in your heart because that is the only thing that matters in this earth. Would you sum it up that way? That's the only thing that matters. Well, you know, you have a belief always has to have an object. Yes, right. So there are a lot of people that have faith, but what is that faith? That's right. The object of the faith. The object of the faith. The author of the faith. The giver of the faith. It's all Christ. He provides the faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. The Word of God. So, so we understand that. Now let's look at this. What is this? The, the crowd, it's amazing. Like I said, don't be too hard on the crowd because this would be you if it weren't for God's work in your mind. Therefore they said to him, Okay, if that didn't work, if you're not going to answer this question, we understand what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Jesus understood this heart of these people. He understood this implication. The people were saying, Moses... Moses gave us the manna in heaven, and this manna in heaven lasted us for 40 years. Exodus 16. Jesus knew what they were saying, although they didn't say it. Look at this. They said, What sign will you perform that it may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, and He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say unto you, Moses didn't give you the bread. See, they never said Moses did it, but He knew their hearts. They thought it. They were Moses law centric people. They worshiped Moses. Man, they thought their salvation was by the law, and they were proud of Moses. And that's why God Himself took care of Moses' disposal so the people wouldn't worship Moses. Read that in Jude. And so Jesus knows their hearts. And he says, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, and Moses never claimed to do on and on. God's going to do this. God's going to do that. God's going to do this. In Exodus 16. But Jesus knows the problem. The problem is they're trusting in their, in their traditions. They're trusting that the law is going to save them. They're trusting that, that you know, they're God's special people. And they don't understand spiritual things. And this is what is the core problem of today's loss, right? 
I trust that my daddy was a preacher. I trust that my mama was a, an elder. A co-pastor, whatever it is. I did this, I did that, I did that. And, and what people do, and I've talked to... They compare themselves to other people. Well, I'm not, at least I'm not as bad as Greg. For goodness, I'm not as bad as... Certainly, I'm not as bad as fill in the blank. Comparing themselves to other people. I was witnessing this Jewish guy one time, and he said, I'm going to take my chances. I said, what are, you, what are you basing this on? He said, because I am not as bad as he named a rabbi. And the whole basis for salvation was, at least I'm not as bad as this person. Okay? Works. Compare myself. The comparative standard is perfection. And we've got to be perfect. And the only way we're perfect is we're closed with Christ's righteousness. That's the only acceptable way, right? So Jesus pointed this out to him. He said, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. They were saying... You just fed 20,000 people temporarily for a day, but Moses, who we depend on, he fed 3 million Jews for 40 years. Top that. You're going to have to outdo Moses if we're going to trust in you. That's what they were saying. That's what they were thinking. And Jesus understood that. Right? They're still obtuse, as MacArthur says. They're still blind. They're shallow. And uh, Jesus is saying, you've got to trust me. I'm God. Moses wasn't. Moses never claimed to do these things. You read that in Exodus 16. Now Jesus then goes on in his dissertation about, I am the bread of life. So we're, we're done with this. And then Jesus basically is going to tell them in very, very detailed Account, true bread from heaven. And I think we had this as three. True bread. Now we understand bread is a metaphor, and we understand that bread provides physical sustenance, and we understand that Jesus is a metaphor for providing spiritual sustenance. And when we get into eating the bread and, and eating and drinking the wine, and we'll talk about all that next week, but Jesus is talking about true bread. And He says, first of all we see, look what He says, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, and it's like verily, verily, this is truth. This is an unflappable truth. Thy word is truth. He says, I tell you, God, I tell you, I'm God, I tell you this. This is truth. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So we see about this, it is a gift from the Father. And this is assuredly, and this is to be trusted, and this is absolute truth. That the bread, true bread, is a gift 
from the Father. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. We've read that in in 3.16 and some of the other uh, parts of John. It is a gift from the Father. And Jesus said, that's how you know the true bread from the temporary physical bread. The true bread is a gift from the Father. The same God, as I'm reading my notes, who gave the manna for physical sustenance, gives Jesus Christ for spiritual. Jesus says the bread from heaven, and the word gift, it says here, uh, uh, my Father... Uh, gives you the true bread for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life. That give is in the present participle. That means it's a continual giving. He gave and He continues to give and He will continue to give Christ as our spiritual sustenance. Everybody understand that? It's a continued gift that keeps on giving. It continues and is a gift from the Father. So we see that it is a gift from the Father. And then he says, Then they said, Lord, give us this bread. Still don't understand it. Still don't understand it. Give us this bread also. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And be very clear, when he says, I am, he is claiming what the I am means. And let's turn to Exodus 3.14 Remember Moses at the burning bush? Moses sees a burning bush and the bush is not consumed. And Moses who's been in the wilderness 40 years running from the Egyptians is called of God to go back to Egypt to say, I am has sent me and you need to let my people go Pharaoh. We see this is is a, a chapter three of Exodus. We see this recounting of the burning bush. We see this what Jesus uh, God says to Moses, verse fourteen. He's talking about. He says, "What if they don't believe me?" Moses is a man. He's he's uh, has his uh, uh, skepticism. They're not going to believe me. They're going to want to see signs. What am I going to do? God said to Moses, "I am who I am." Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then God says, this is my name forever. I am. When He says, I am that I am, that word literally means I am self-existent. That means I am eternal from time past and will always be. I am self-determining. My will will be done and there will be no frustration. There will be no... My will, my secretive will will be accomplished. We also understand God's revealed will can be thwarted. God's revealed will can be disobeyed because God calls us all to obey Him and trust Him and, and do His commandments, but man can disavow and not do His revealed will, which is His Word, but His self-determining will, His his secretive will will be accomplished. So when He says, I am that I am, I'm the self-existent, I'm the self-determining one, what else do I have there? Self-sustaining, eternal, self-existent one. So He is self-sustaining. He doesn't have a need of anyone. He is complete in Himself. He doesn't get lonely. He doesn't get 
discouraged, frustrated. He, he is completely self-contained within whom he is. And so he tells Moses, I am that I am. Make no mistake about it. When Jesus said, I am bread, when I am light, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. He is claiming to be God. Make no doubt about it. And at the end of the dissertation in chapter 8, when 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 these, these Jews don't understand his conversation about Abraham. And he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And they said, how can you be in 50, less than 50, how can you have talked to Abraham who's been dead? And then Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. I'm God. I existed before Abraham. And I will continue to always exist. So yes, He is claiming to be God. Yes, He is dovetailing with the... When we first hear it at the burning bush, I am God. And I am bread. And I am your only hope. And I am your... And you must come to Me. You must come to Me. So He says that He claims to be God. And the response is predictable. I am the bread of life. Because the people still didn't understand He was speaking of Himself from point B under three, Jesus emphatically tells them who He is. He's claiming to be God. This clearly refers to God's revelation to Moses and Jesus' declarations to the Jews in 858 that He existed before Abraham. The same Yahweh sounds like I am in Hebrew. The name proclaims His eternal self-existence, self-sustaining, self-determining, sovereign reality. This is known as the tetragrammation and it is Jehovah in English. I'm not going to bore you with the Hebrew, but there was three English, three Hebrew words. Uh, why? I think... Uh, is that right? Y-W-H-W? Why? It's a Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. Had it backwards. This is the word Yahweh. The Jews, the, uh, that was such a sacred word that they wouldn't even pronounce it. So what the, happened, the Miserites, uh, they came through and took three of the v- words and they took Adonai, which is Lord and Master, and they lengthened it to Yahweh, which is Jehovah. So anytime you see a Lord all capitalized in my Bible, it is, that means Yahweh, Jehovah, the self-existent, the highest name for God, His self-disclosure of who He is. It's called the tetragrammation, but uh, it's the word that they don't want to pronounce because it's so holy. He's claiming that's who I am. I am disclosing myself. So that's where we get, that's if you wanted to know what that meant. Now let's look at this, this bread exclusively and we get some uh, specifics about this. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will no means cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up to the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. First thing we see, and this is going to be multiple times throughout the Scripture, but I just have a few of these listed. First thing, when we look at this, uh, uh, make no doubt about it, salvation is an exclusive. First thing we see is that the Father must draw. The Father must draw. We see this in multiple verses. We see this in verse 37. All that the Father gives me. So the Father, we call this the covenant of redemption. Covenant of redemption. Before the foundation of the world, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit plan the salvation of people. The Father chose a people. The Son came to die for those people that the Father had given Him. And the Holy Spirit breathes life into those people so that those people believe and have faith and trust in the work of Christ. And that work reconciles men to the Godhead. But that is the covenant of redemption. Uh, You can read about that in multiple places. Uh, You can read about it in uh, uh, Ephesians 1... 4 through 13. The longest verse in the Bible, one Greek sentence. It's got to be the most amazing sentence ever written by the Spirit. Uh, you can read about this in Romans 8, uh, 29 and 30. And it means, basically, means this the covenant of redemption. Who the Father foreknew, He predestined. And then to become sons of God. And then He called. And then He justified. And then He is going to glorify. And it's all in the past tense. It's already been accomplished. And it's the golden chain of grace that the pastor spoke about. But it was accomplished in the mind of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit before the foundation of the world. He told Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And so if you are in Christ, you were loved and formed and and chosen before you were born. And hallelujah to that. And if that don't bring a, a a little flicker to your heart, then maybe there's something wrong with your flicker. Uh, not in that five chain, but it is understood between justification and glorification, yeah. But it's not in that five chain. But it is certainly uh, the covenant of redemption. Uh, he who began a good work will finish it. Sanctification, right? Is you going to say something, Ms. Fran? I'm just okay, you, you continue to think. That's beautiful. So we see this. The Father draws. Now let's look at... Uh, 38, same thing. For I've come down from the Father, from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Jesus didn't come arbitrarily. 
He came to accomplish the purpose His Father had given Him. And He accomplished that perfect, that, that purpose, the will of the Father perfectly. Look what He says. This is the will of the Father. He says, I came not to do my will, but the will of the Father. And you think, well, what was that will? Here it is. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all He has given me, before the foundation of the world in this covenant, I should lose nothing. All of the baskets are going to be full and not one fragment is going to be left. We are the will of the Father. We are the will of the Father. When the Father God gives to the Son, that's the act of regeneration. And then we can believe That's right. His work, He does the drawing, He does it all. So we see that Jesus came to do one thing, the will of the Father. The angel said, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, and Thou shalt save His people from their sin. His people. Okay? And we're going to get into this some more deep. When you get into sheep, and we're going to, I'm going to start preaching. Anyway, verse 44, uh, none who can come to me, verse 44, none can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him. This is a sovereign work of God. Okay, verse 44, none can come unless the Father draws them. Uh, uh, let's look at 847, just for a little, little teaser, 847. He who is of God hears God's Word because they've been regenerated by the Spirit. Therefore, you don't hear because you're not of God. It's spiritual discernment that is a work of God that causes you to believe. Okay. Uh, we, I could, there's a bunch of these, but 1029, don't want to rob everything yet. Verse 1029, 1029, My Father who is given to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch him out of my Father's hand. Uh, 28, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. So it all fits into this beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Jesus says, The Father must draw. Look at this one. This is the one I love. Greg and I were talking about this today. Between church, you know what people do, we talk about these things. Look what the bread does. The bread completely satisfies. And we'll put the bread in italics so you'll understand I'm not talking about a wafer or manna from heaven. The bread completely satisfies. And to quote John Newton, that, John, that Greg reminded me of, if you don't get your satisfaction from Christ, you'll never be satisfied. Is that right? Thank you, brother. Thank you. The bread completely satisfies. Look what he says. I am the bread of life, verse 35. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That doesn't talk about you need to drink water, you need food. He's talking about the intimacy with Christ and the reconciliation through Him creates soul satisfaction. 
So that's why we can say no to sin because that sin's allurement doesn't satisfy us like Christ does. Right? We're not seeking other satisfaction. We, we have a, a soul needs to be filled and it's filled with Him in the Spirit. So the bread completely satisfies. We like the disciples, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. I don't need to look to this religion, this religion, that, that, this, that, and that. Uh, I, don't, I can say lies to the devil because all he offers is a counterfeit. But the bread completely satisfies. We've talked about this. The bread, and I've already had these in your notes, the bread uh, does the Father's will. Okay? And... One of the last things I mentioned, uh, none can come to the Father unless... Uh, and then if you come to the bread, you will not be cast out. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you hunger and if you thirst, come to me. It is a general call. If you know you're thirsty and you know you're hungry... You come to me, and I will by no means cast you out. But God's got to work that work in you guys so you know you're hungry, right? And you know you're thirsty. I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to finish this thought because I'm going to put this all in a little package, a little uh, a package uh, before I get to uh, spiritual intimacy with Christ. So that's what we'll talk about next week. Uh, Comments or questions?